Good day to you, students of Theo 102. Good day. <laughs> and this is the Need to Know More podcast on Welcome. our word for the week, which is a council. A council. Council. Yes, not council like give someone advice, oh. but council. Different spelling. Yes. S-E-L like, versus C-I-L. Mm-hmm. Mm. Council, C-I-L. Call everybody together and make a big decision. We shall have a council. Oh, here's the thing though, that I think like, let's say you're in a family and let's say your parents are, are, are like, you know, your sweet mates in the dorm or somebody's yes. like, we need to have a meeting. And it's like, yes. oh crap. Like, you know, it's going <laughs> to go down at that point. Are church councils like that? Can they be read that way? Do you think as a church historian, like when there's a council, mm-hmm. something, somebody's in trouble basically. Well, I actually do think that's a pretty um, in some ways, that's an appropriate reading of what were what church councils were, because um, there's there's like this whole disciplined body of literature that basically says most of Christian theology is deciding what you're not mm. as much as as it is deciding what you are. Indeed. So there's co- sort of a negative. We're not this, and so anytime the argument would go anytime when you read a creed mm-hmm. when they're saying we are for this they're also saying oh, we are yeah. not that like last oh, yeah. week we talked about this big theological argument in the readings and in the video between Arius and Athanasius mm-hmm. and team Arius in the long run lost mm-hmm. and was considered to be heretics and then team Athanasius won they're considered to be yes. orthodox and yes. so all of those those statements, they are positive in the creed and they are also negative. They're saying what we're not. So yeah, I think that's right. It kind of reminded me of like the way that you dress in middle school and high school or the cliques you belong to. It's oh like, yeah. It's what always... clique were you in, Dr. Dr. Doak? Um, Those little mini Dr. Doak. You know, it's weird because the, the cliques and the groups in my day don't always map on to what's today or are, oh, right. or are they eternal? I think oh, I was, mine's eternal for I sure. I was kind of a crossover between like the jock athletic thing because I did a lot of sports, but I also had like this very like kind of like weird indie kind of flair. Okay. Like, like I would, goth I would, back in the day? Not so much goth, like the kind of person who would wear that. like shorts over jeans just to be weird and a Rage Against the Machine t-shirt. Like <laughs> I would do that. Right kind against of stuff. the machine is evergreen. They're always cool. Yeah. So I was I was kind of like okay, I was in yeah. between those zones. Yeah. I was a drama dork and those that's evergreen. Uh, that always uh, exists. Yes. Um, but yeah, so I think in some ways councils are establishing in and out mm-hmm. in the same way mm-hmm. that clothing and other forms, right. like other signifiers when you are a young person, mm-hmm. establish your identity. I actually think that's a pretty good metaphor. So this is like the Christian church establishing yeah. a sense of identity by saying both what it is and what it is. I think this is a really broad theme too, because you think no matter when you're listening to this, those students, there are always calls in politics for like unity, right? It's like unity, unity, mm-hmm. but unity never really means no one is out. That's there's right. always I, what I hear you saying is whenever you come and you make a list or you say this is who we are, there's always even if it's unacknowledged in the moment, there's always an other. There's always like a and this is what we're not. Mm-hmm. And I've also heard um, other historians and scholars talk about even the act of establishing um, the in group and what is uh, according to Christian teaching like right Christian doctrine, Mm -hmm. that doesn't mean that there's not disagreement in Mm -hmm. there either. Mm -hmm. So there can be incredible amounts of diversity within Mm -hmm. the in group. Mm -hmm. Um, And councils are an example of, I do think we, I think you started this conversation by saying, was there a feeling of like, dun, 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 you know, when a council gets called? Yeah, I think so. Because I think that means somebody's in trouble. If it's worth in the ancient world, 
gathering people from all the corners of the world was dangerous and time consuming and expensive. Mm -hmm. And so the fact that they all decided, you know, something was important enough to to gather the entire church council, because we're talking about there's a series of seven what's called ecumenical councils. And and Dr. Claire talks about that in his lecture. Like if you're going to get that big of a group of people together, it's because it's a big deal. Some of them probably took like weeks. Some people probably died on the way to these councils. Like Certainly. It probably took yep. weeks. Yep. 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 Um, and the councils themselves kind of drug on because they're, they're wrestling through really big right. ideas. And so th- this was not like, you know, a zoom meeting. No. And you're, <laughs> and you're seeing people and I'm struck too, to think of the ancient world. You're also seeing people now that you've maybe heard about or oh, maybe yeah. read a letter from them, but you've never seen them or heard their voice in your life. And now over one of the biggest debates of your day, you're going to see them for the first time. I can see how this would be super important because, you know, we live in a culture wherein we've sort of farm a lot of in-person activities out into digital sure. formats. You can read their, and, t- read their tweets or mm-hmm, even if it's just that. Mm-hmm. And it's so much different being in the same room with with somebody else. I mean, it's hard to explain how different that is. So you can see why councils um, were really important because it's one thing to be in an argument with someone that you don't see, Mm -hmm. but it's another thing to be in the same room with that person. That's why it's funny when you see like a long, angry, like, Twitter thread or like a long comment section on Facebook. Sometimes you think it'd be funny if just people got teleported into the same room. Like, okay, say all that stuff now. Oh yeah. No, <laughs> no chance they would. Yeah. Well, but these, but these people had to, I heard, is this, is this like an urban legend or is this true that Athanasius actually got in a boxing match on the floor of one of the councils with somebody? But well, there was actually I don't fisticuffs. know that it was boxing, but I do think that there were fisticuffs involved. Yeah. People took this stuff super seriously. And, and there was a saying during um, the council of Nice, was it Nicaea or somewhere else? One of these councils, somebody had remarked like, when you go into the market, when you go out on the street, all you can hear are people just debating what was Jesus, was Christ, you know, two persons or one or three or like, you know, like yeah. everybody was like wrapped up in this stuff. Yeah. I mean, I think one thing, because we live in a culture where we celebrate something that, I mean, it's called a lot of different things, but maybe religious pluralism, like this idea that you could have a lot of different religions all existing right. in the same time and peacefully. Right. Um, that is such a modern invention and like a really new idea. Mm. So this idea that, I mean, I, I think that the energy with which most Americans engage in political discourse, like which party you belong to or which person you think is a great politician or not great politician, transfer that kind of energy to mm-hmm. theology. And oh, you yeah. can see like why these things mattered so much to people. In fact, a lot of times when I'm teaching in person um, in class, I try to encourage students to do like mock versions of councils oh. where they embody a a certain position and they Mm -hmm. start to argue with each other. But we're so trained to not talk about stuff like that in those kind of like really sharp turn or tones um, that it takes students a long time. And I have to tell them like, stop being nice, like go for the jugular, you know, like to give Mm. them the experience of caring so much. Yes. Um, We are talking about another church council and we're talking about what is happening in the church 400 around 400 to 450 years Mm. after the life of Jesus. So a lot has changed since then. 
a lot has changed and they're starting to get organized. They have these seven councils. The lecture mentioned these, mentions these seven councils, you know, starts by talking about this, uh, the so-called Arian controversy, yes. Arius, this idea that, well, maybe God created Jesus. Like he made mm-hmm. him yes. as opposed to that. He was like preexistent and so on. But um, his opponents had to really lean into ideas from scripture, actually, like from, from John chapter one to say, no, in the beginning was the word and this word was Jesus. And so somehow Jesus was that yeah, pre-existent it- thing. It, I mean, it may seem obvious to us because we're so far down the line of affirming the idea that Jesus is um, begotten, not made, as um, the Nicene Creed talks about. Um, but this idea that Jesus is a created being, it actually makes a lot of sense if you think about it. There are lots of yeah, biblical you, verses that could yeah. support that position. Yeah, you could see where it was where where, where someone would be coming from. Mm-hmm. Um, for that. I, I mean, this is a question though that I have for theologians and church historians. I mean, and it's a question that was raised in the lecture, but I want to pose it again to you. Like, does it really matter whether he was created or just exists? Like what's like, what's the upshot? Like who even cares? Why did they care so much? Why would anyone care now? Like be like, yeah, Jesus, he's just like, you know, he's just kind of like in some awesome category and you can use certain words to describe it or not, but like, he's still awesome. It's still good. You can still pray to him. Yeah, well, I think that that's a a question that um, Athanasius tackles in this book that we, we, students read a little bit of that from the chapter last week, Mm. Um, but he writes this massive it's actually not that big. It's 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 relatively short, and kind I highly like a recommend long, it. Long essay, yeah, called "On the Incarnation," mm-hmm. and it was a favorite of um, C.S. Lewis's. So mm-hmm. that's a lot of evangelical students like to hear that. Um, but he basically argues that it is actually a really a big deal that Jesus is one hundred percent divine. So not mm-hmm. a good and worthy human who was promoted to godship, mm-hmm. but someone who was always preexistent with God because. Um, I mean, there's a lot of different reasons, but a big one is that because he is our link to God. Mm-hmm. So you need to have someone who has Godness mm-hmm. already originally in their, right. their DNA. And so he talks about the incarnation, like the the birth or the the creation of of Christ in his mother's womb mm-hmm. um, as like, that's really important. And I think that's kind of interesting for evangelicals. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on this because a lot of evangelicals kind of they get really excited about the crucifixion and the resurrection, which are huge, important, important pivotal no things. No question. Um, but Athanasius argues that, and and the early church was really wrestling with, oh, Jesus, like his conception, like who yeah, he is, the birth, right? Yeah, that is just mm-hmm. as important as as the the resurrection and the crucifixion. What do you think about that? Yeah, well, I I worry. I have worried in my own life of faith at times. So I'm not. I'm not saying this is not me. I'm not accusing. This is totally me. <laughs> But I've also I've also seen this in other people for sure. Sometimes it's easier to recognize faults in others. I don't maybe just me. Okay, but, um, <laughs> I think that's always the case. I have, I have seen in my own life and in the life of the church what I would call a kind of like a weirdly. Sometimes I I call this like the technical theory of salvation, mm, and I mm-hmm. have found that evangelical types among whom I grew up, evangelical is just like a kind of a very broad and Big, hard to define yeah. word that typically describes people who think that you need to get saved and read the Bible, read the Bible and be part of a Bible study. And yeah. you probably go to like, that's t- typically kind of like evangelicalism. Okay. But the vast majority of students come to George Fox from some yeah. sort of version of that. If you don't know what you are and you go to like a non-denominational church, <laughs> you're, and probably like guitar, <laughs> you're probably an evangelical. Yeah. Many evangelicals get involved in this idea of like what I would just call like technical salvation, which is, it's very like transactional. It's like, I 
okay, it's it, it's it's a very consumer kind of habit. Like, mm. okay, I want to acquire salvation and heaven. That's reasonable. Who wouldn't want to acquire it? I want to acquire it. How do I acquire it? Oh, you say a prayer and you go to a certain kind of church. Okay, great. Thanks. Bye. And so when you get that kind of mindset, you could then start to obsess about the crucifixion and the mm-hmm. resurrection because that's the center point of, in this way of thinking, it's just like a, it's an easy to remember place where you could make the transaction. And it's super important in Christian theology, but it's like, no, like, like the, yeah, Jesus' birth is actually a point of that. If you, if you even want to stick with the transaction language, if you like that, the birth would be an equally important moment to, to make that transaction that God makes with humanity when Jesus becomes incarnate, a person. I appreciate how you framed that because what I'm hearing you say is that one benefit of studying the early church and the like the ancient church is that they're reminding us to think about the whole life of Christ. Yes. Um in from you know from from his um presence with us as like his conception all the way to his death and resurrection and his ascension, obviously. Right. Um, so I, yeah, I, I really like how you framed that. One of the things that Dr. Claire talked about, and I know it's your area of specialty, is we're, all of these conversations are happening with Christian scripture, like with the Bible. Totally. You're an expert on the Bible. Can you talk a little bit about the role of the Bible in the ancient church and like what the Bible actually even was? Because we, you know, we've talked mm-hmm. about like there were lots of different writings that made it in, made it out in this period. What sure. are your thoughts as a Bible scholar well, on one what's thing, happening? Well, yeah, one thing to, to know, I can't remember if this appeared in the lecture or not, and it's going back to last week a little bit, but we should we should note that um, the first really kind of, it's, it's often acknowledged that one of the first robust full lists of a Christian canon, the list of the books that were supposed to be in the Bible, really appears in a letter from Athanasius around the year 360. I think it's like 364 or 361, Mm. but Mm -hmm. let's just say for memory's sake, around 360 AD, Mm. which shows you that in fact, this early church, you know, I I find myself able, you know, when you look at early Christian heresies, like these ideas, maybe we could talk about heresy and orthodoxy and what Mm -hmm. that means, but, um, I, I don't know. I, I like, I have some grace in my mind for the early church because they were dealing with like, they didn't have just like Bibles fl- flowing around. You mm-hmm. know, they were trying to put the Bible together and having even debates about that. One early church historian named Eusebius, who I think writes in the fifth century, the 400s, mm-hmm. if I'm not mistaken, he talks about the debates about what should even be in the canon and includes some of the debates are around books that we just accept as being totally cool. Like the book of Revelation. Right. He's like, yeah, that maybe some people think that shouldn't be in the Bible. Well, yeah. And other, so. <laughs> other Christian writings like Perpetua and Felicitas, like another one called the Shepherd of Hermas. Yeah. Um, those ones were considered okay yeah. in a lot of circles. They were and in certain Bibles. other ones weren't. Yep. Yeah. Some of the so. earliest Greek, some of the earliest full Bibles we have, Greek texts actually had the Shepherd of Hermas in it um, or the Didache or it, things exactly. like that. So yeah, I don't know about you, but I like to think about orthodoxy and heresy. I mean, it's hard because if you read um, some of the accounts, there's very sharp rhetoric, mm. you know, people are damning each other left and right. Um, in in some of these accounts, but I like to think a bit of it a little bit more like Christian discernment. Mm. Like if, if we take the words of Jesus seriously, when he says, lo, I'm with you even to the end of the age, I'm, and I'm going to send a messenger to help you. Like if we say, if we think to ourselves, okay, Jesus is with us. He has given us the spirit to be with us. We need to listen and listening takes time. Mm. So I think that 
the the categories of like orthodox and heretical, mm-hmm. they are important. Um, but we should also think about the people who are um, in the heretic category as no one wants to be the villain, right? They're all trying to figure out right. who is God? What does it mean to follow God? Yes. What does it mean to be faithful? So yep. I agree. We should we should look at, at all of these groups with right. as much generosity as we can muster. Oh, totally. Muster. They, were, they were figuring it out, and we are blessed by their work. Mm-hmm. Nobody wakes up in the morning. I mean, you, you, shoot me an email, student. If you wake up in the morning and you get out your Cheerios and you're like, I want to be a heretic today. <laughs> How can I do that? Like nobody does that. They'll right? be like a couple. That doesn't mean couple. that the Christian church can't make judgments. I was just looking at the etymology. I was like, I know what the etymology is of the word orthodox. Mm-hmm. It means it means straight or right opinion. Mm-hmm. Ortho orthos plus doxa. But I was like, what is the etymology of a heretic? It means apparently able to choose. Mm. So ch- so it's from like a, a root that means choose. So apparently a heretic is somebody who chooses against the right way or something like that. Oh, that's really interesting. So it's like, you don't have the right to choose what the views are, which is, I think, a a popular Christian refrain throughout the years. Like, you don't just get to pick, like, what's right. (laughs) Like, it just is what it is. Well, yeah, because I think there's something that's fundamentally, and this is weird for people in our American context, but there's something that's very Mm anti-individualistic about Christianity. Like, you are not just by yourself. Right. So on that sense, it's kind of a, it's I think it's actually a helpful definition because you're not supposed to be able to just go out on right. your own and say I think this. Now there are some things though which are a little bit like for instance the Trinity. Yes. Um very you know historically famously confusing. But yes. you, you don't get to choose about the Trinity in Christian terms. You don't get to be like I think that there are just two people in the Trinity and really the Holy Spirit is not a part of it. That's something for which you could not be a heretic, a chooser. Well, it's interesting because, you know, there are lots of different kinds of Christians in the U.S. now who are not Trinitarian. Wow. Um, the Some that are like, and, and even different versions of um, Christianity that have what would be considered an unorthodox position. But yeah, for the vast majority of Christians, the right. Trinity is like, it's it's right. a um, a... Not one that you can argue with. Not, um, a, not a choose. At the same time, though, I don't know about you. I've been I've been a Christian for a really long time. I the the Trinity is a mystery to me. Oh, like yeah. it does not make no, of course. it doesn't make sense, and yet it makes sense, and yeah, it's right. just something that I'll wrestle with my whole life. But I would feel with reference to to the denominations or groups or a specific yeah. denomination that that doesn't believe that Jesus is or believes that Jesus is God, and that's just it. Yeah, like I would feel really uncomfortable as a Christian with a view like that. Like that just that falls short of the historic affirmation of the Trinity. Well, it's funny because I have some friends who are um, oneness friends. So mm-hmm. that's what- um, What, they're, what they're, these, this group is referred to, oneness. Yeah, because it's Jesus is one God. Jesus and um, they they jokingly refer to themselves as heretics. So oh. they're aware of that <laughs> they know, historical they conversation. I'm sure they've been told. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. But there are some other things though, like the baptism yes. thing where Christians have- gone different ways, but it's usually not risen to the level of calling people heretics. For example, there are many reformed Christians in certain reformed traditions like Presbyterians. Um, Catholics, of course, is not a reformed tradition, but a different thing. Um, Orthodox, um, uh, Anglican, Episcopalian who would do infant baptism, but then other groups would not do it. And Mm -hmm. I typically, I have heard people use strong language about that or say, I don't agree with it, but I've never, I've never heard anyone call anyone actually a literal heretic over that. Well, I have. There are some groups <laughs> who say that, like, if you don't have, if you don't practice baptism the way that they practice it, then you are not actually saved. Mm. Um, 
And some people think that you you need to have like a specific formula mm-hmm. of a baptism. But and by formula, I mean like mm-hmm. whoever baptizes you needs to say particular words in order for your baptism to be what's right. called efficacious or to, to right. have worked. Right, right. I think it's important to note that this is an era in the church when almost everybody was baptized as an infant. So that's something that, I mean, we'll talk about because baptism as a thing becomes like super controversial um, as as the church develops. Mm-hmm. But um, St. Augustine, mm-hmm. uh, one of the theologians that Dr. Claire loves St. Augustine, and he, he um, talked a little bit about him. Um, St. Augustine lays a foundation for thinking about um, baptism mm-hmm. as... Um, as something that's really important to do for infants. Mm-hmm. Basically the the logic of it is if you have um if if you believe that baptism um is a necessary part of becoming a part of the divine life the the people of God mm-hmm. like God's plan for the world mm-hmm. um and that baptism sets you on a trajectory to change um your desires and make you more like Christ mm-hmm. and gives you the right or the ability to choose Christ. Right. Um, why wouldn't you do that ASAP? So, um, well, you would, it's a very, and it's a very mystical view though, too. Almost mm-hmm. this, it relies on the idea that the baptism at the physical act itself imparts something to you mm-hmm. as opposed to saying it's a really good symbol for helping people who know what they're doing, think about what they've done and recall it and so on, Yep. which is, I think where the argument then breaks down about it. Okay. But I can, I can hear a very practical student, maybe even some of our transactional friends out Uh there uh saying, okay, but I want to know what, I want to do the right thing. Maybe I wasn't baptized the right way. Am I going to be like thrown headlong into hell because someone didn't say the right words when I got baptized? Oh yeah. Well, that's like a perpetual question for, for Christians. You may, you know, you students, if you are in that camp and you're listening right now and you're just thinking, oh no, um, you might be happy to know that you are in, um, a, this university comes from a theological tradition that actually really de-emphasizes the physical act of baptism. Um, and uh, so the the French tradition, we're going to get to the Quakers eventually, and we will talk about them. But yeah, there are lots of Christians who would embrace um, theologies like the Trinity and many mm-hmm. other things that are considered to be orthodox, and who would argue that like a- any particular ritual Mm-hmm. is not is not going to make the difference between life with God and life apart from God. This week, students, you're going to be reading from a guy um, named uh, St. John Chrysostom. Um, and he was known in the ancient world for being um, a really excellent teacher and preacher. And in fact, we're going to be reading a sermon that he wrote that is still read today in Orthodox and uh, Eastern Orthodox and Byzantine Catholic churches uh, every Easter. Um, yeah, like so an Easter tradition. Yeah, it is, and so um, it's very short. Don't worry if you're used to churches where they have like hour and a half long sermons. <laughs> this is not that. It's like a page long. Um, we're going to read it, um, and we're going to just try and put ourselves in the position of of an ancient Christian mind. Do you want to start us off, Dr. Doak? Totally. Um, the catechetical homily, meaning the homily about like... Te- sermon. Sermon yeah. about teaching people what's what's right and how to, how to do it of St. John Chrysostom. Okay. If any be devout and God-loving, let him enjoy this fair and radiant triumph. If any be a good and wise servant... 
let him enter rejoicing into the joy of his Lord. If any be weary of fasting, let him now receive his reward. If any have labored from the first hour, let him receive today his rightful due. If any have come at the third hour, let him feast with thankfulness. If any have arrived at the sixth hour, let him in no wise be in doubt, for in no wise shall he suffer loss. If any be delayed even until the ninth hour, let him draw near, doubting nothing, fearing nothing. If any have tarried even until the eleventh hour, let him not be fearful on account of his lateness, for the master, who is jealous of his honor, receiveth the last even as the first. He giveth rest to him that cometh at the eleventh hour, as well as to him that hath labored from the first hour. And to the last he is merciful, and to the first he pleaseth. To the one he giveth, and to the other he bestoweth. And he receiveth the works, and welcometh the intention. And the deed he honoreth, and the offering he praiseth. Wherefore, then, enter ye all into the joy of your Lord. For both the first and the second receive ye your reward. Ye rich and ye poor, with one another exalt. Ye sober and ye slothful, honor the day. Ye that have kept the fast and ye that have not, be glad today. The table is full laden, delight ye all. The calf is fatted, let none go forth hungry. Let all enjoy the feast of faith, receive all ye the riches of goodness. Let no one bewail his poverty, for the universal kingdom hath been revealed. Let no one weep for his transgressions, for forgiveness hath dawned from the tomb. Let no one fear death. For the death of the Savior hath set us free. He hath quenched by it. He hath led Hades captive. He who hath, who, tra- who descended into Hades. He embittered it when it tasted of his flesh. And foretelling this, Isaiah cried, Hades, he said, was embittered when it encountered thee below. It was embittered, for it was abolished. It was embittered, for it was mocked. It was embittered, for it was slain. It was embittered, for it was overthrown. It was embittered, for it was fettered. It received a body and encountered God. It received earth and met heaven. It received that which it saw and fell to what it did not see. O death, where is thy sting? O Hades, where is thy victory? Christ is risen and thou art cast down. Christ is risen and let and the demons are fallen. Christ is risen and the angels rejoice. Christ is risen and life flourisheth. Christ is risen and there is none dead in the tombs. For Christ, being risen from the dead, is become the first fruits of them that have fallen asleep. To him be glory and dominion unto the ages of ages. Amen. Woo! Man, you know, sermons in the ancient world kind of like today, like like repeating things, like little refrains, oh, like where yeah. you keep like saying something over and over again with the same kind of intro and then a different like second part to the sentence. Yeah, I actually love this so much. Um, he was, uh, Chrysostom literally means golden mouthed oh. in Greek. And yeah. so that notes that he was a very, very celebrated preacher. And you can totally see why, because I don't know, this is like altar call of altar calls, I have to say, oh, yeah. when we were reading it, because I was like, I can totally see a traditional like revivalist preacher yeah. saying this, like, oh, totally. you know, Christ is risen and thou art cast down. And the, and the crowd like, what? 
Well, you know, the beginning, um, even though he doesn't like have chapter and verse references and quotes, the beginning, Ugh. of course, references a really encouraging parable that Jesus tells. I love tells. that parable. Yeah. Um, the parable of the the workers, I guess. I'm not sure what how people refer to it, but like Jesus says, you know, somebody comes and works a whole day. Then somebody comes and works half a day. Then somebody comes like and works one hour at the end of a day. And the master's there and he's like, hey, here's your wage. And he pays everyone the same. And everyone's like, and, and the guy who worked the whole day is like, what are you talking about? And, uh-huh. G- and, and the owner's just like, hey, I gave you what your, was your due. What do you care if I'm generous? Which is like an amazing way to think about God. Come to God. And it, puts, to God. and it puts those of us who maybe have lived this life of righteousness from our youth and we grew up in the church and went to Christian high schools and we think somehow like we have some place. It's like, no, God just flings the door open. Yeah, it puts us on notice. And I, I love how scripture soaked this is. I love the the line um, he he refers to a bunch. I feel like it's a bunch of different parables, but the one, one of my favorites, the one that's called the prodigal son, the calf is fatted, let none go forth hungry. I think students read that uh, last semester. But oh yeah, the prodigal son Basically, and yeah, this wasteful son who goes away and squanders his inheritance and then he encounters hard times and he comes back to his father and his father, instead of um, rejecting him, mm-hmm. creates this huge feast, including mm-hmm. a fatted calf. Um, which mm-hmm. like big, huge barbecue. That's how I interpret that. Um, so I love this sermon because it's basically, he's saying, I interpret him as saying, and I want to hear what you you think, a couple different things. One is it's never too late. Never Come too late. right now. Today's the day. 11th hour, first hour, ninth hour. Yeah. It does not matter. And then the other one that I love, which this is one of my favorite theological moves of the early church. And now is he's talking about how Christ defeats death. Oh yeah, this Woo! is yeah, like he goes down there and like death eats him, but then it's like a bitter pill. Oh, I love that part. And then death has to like basically die and puke and stuff because I want to hear your your thoughts on this cuz like the idea of death as as a person or at, like as a as a being right. that is defeated. I know you specialize in like ancient monsters and stuff like that, but what I want to hear you reflect on that, that yeah. idea. Yeah. Well, this is okay. So that this idea, I think this is maybe students who are in the course last semester, remember our debate about um, atonement. Yeah. Mm-hmm. One of the theories of atonement, one of the prominent ones, one that was really popular in the ancient church, but it's, it's almost like a, I little, love this a little weird to people today. Yeah. It's the idea like somehow in Jesus, God almost like tricked Satan. Yeah. I love it. And like Satan ended up like he's this big monster fish and like, God sent down a hook down into the roiling waters, baited with Jesus, and the devil's like, ha, 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 and then eats him. But then it's like, oh, no. I love it. You ate the wrong thing because now then. So it's kind of like there's a lot of drama in it, and I think that the sermon in the the death paragraph here, the second uh, second paragraph, it, it partakes in a certain kind of drama that I think you do find throughout Scripture. And you certainly find anytime Scripture's talking about a monster, anytime it's talking about giants and wild beings, there is a drama there. There's a kind of like a a very theatrical sense of like a story that's being told and a very kind of classic theme of the defeat of that, of that monster. I love it. I think, I think that, you know, one of my favorite things about these ancient writings, the ones that have survived, a lot of them are, are um, preserved for a reason because they are just as thrilling from my perspective. There's old timey language for sure, but I think you could do quite easily create an updated version of this that would probably give chills to people in the audience just like they did when they heard from golden mouth 